You have no rival. You have no equal. Yours is the name that is above all names. Indeed, what a beautiful name. What a powerful name. We thank you that we can call on that name, the name of our Savior, the name of our King. We ask that you would bless us this morning, our Heavenly Father. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and that you would be honored and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, we're going to be looking, continuing our study of Ephesians. I'll start off with a little bit of background uh, on my family uh, history, my family situation. Uh, My dad had, and I mean this, zero tolerance for breaking the rules. Now, of course, that changed considerably when he became a grandfather, but at least my experience, and I kind of learned that the hard way because I did my fair share of rule breaking, and I suffered the consequences as a result. Now, when I was young, I kind of saw my dad as a very strict uh, person who got upset. He had very high expectations. He lost his temper. Um, and, but that perspective that I had of him changed considerably as I grew older, and particularly as I had kids of my own and my own family. And I came to realize that he really was doing and did do the best job that he could considering what resources that he had available, the knowledge and the resources that he had available. And now, looking back, I can certainly say that both of us could certainly have done better on that relationship. And if I had a chance to do some things over again, I would probably do things differently. We could all probably say that. Uh, But on the other hand, that relationship had a very powerful effect on me. And I can honestly say that much of whom I am, who I am today, uh, in a very positive sense, is because of the influence that my, my dad had. So we have been looking at the book of Ephesians, particularly chapters 5 and now chapter 6, uh, over the past few weeks. And what we see in there is God's incredible grace for our lives. Um, God saved us to have a relationship with him both here on earth and then also eternally in heaven. And he also saved us to have constructive, positive relationships with one another. He uses those relationships to challenge and to edify us. Now, because God is relational and relationships are very important to him, he wants his grace to characterize and infuse our relationships with one another. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul covers a number of domestic relationships. Um, And he does this kind of systematically according to chronology and then priority. Now chapters 5 and 6 teach us that obedience and mutual submission is really a key factor in making relationships work. But genuine submission, the kind that the Bible talks about, is something that really only the grace of God can enable that. So last week, our brother John Tillery talked to us about submission in the context of husband-wife relationships. Uh, Now, the union of a man and a woman is is the first human relationship that is mentioned in the Bible, and so it's first chronologically. But also, since that relationship pictures the relationship between Christ and the church, it's also really the highest in priority. 
Now today we're going to look at two other domestic relationships. We're going to look at child-parent or parent-child relationships, and we're also going to look at master-servant relationships. So let's go ahead and start. If you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now I'll give the same caveat that our brother John Tillery did, uh, gave last week. There is a lot packed into these verses and we're not going to be able to explore them in depth. Uh, but hopefully the comments that are made here will be helpful. And I would certainly encourage you to study this passage on your own and allow the Holy Spirit to apply the truths of it to your particular situation. Husbands and wives, Paul starts off by talking to wives the, uh, who would have, culturally speaking, been the ones that had less power, less rights in that relationship, at least in that time period. Uh, then he speaks to the husband. Now, he does the same thing here when he addresses children and parents. He starts with the children, again, the ones who, culturally speaking, would have had less rights, less power. The admonition or command to children is, and this is an imperative, this is a command, is to obey their parents. That word obey is the Greek word hupakuo, which means to listen or to hearken or to pay attention. It's the same Greek word that, that Paul uses in verse 5 where he talks about, where he asks or, or commands servants to obey their masters. So what does Paul mean when he says obey them in the Lord? Well, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses three groups. So he also talks to wives and tells them to submit uh, to their husbands as unto the Lord. He talks to servants and asks or tells them to serve their masters as they would the Lord Jesus Christ. So most likely the implication here is the children should regard and honor and obey their parents in the same way that they would the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you think about it, that makes sense because parents receive or have a stewardship from God. They have a responsibility to raise those children, and that responsibility and the authority that goes with it, because wherever God gives responsibility, he also gives authority, uh, are derived flow from God. So just to kind of give you an idea of what this means, I am a leader in a scouting group called Trail Life. I also help out here at First Colony in the youth group, and at work, uh, I'm involved in uh, mentoring interns. Now, in those capacities, I'm involved in teaching, instruction, mentorship, uh, both young men and women. And I certainly hope that they consider and 
appreciate and take advantage of the mentorship that I give them, but I don't have any expectation that they're going to obey everything I tell them. They are not my children. Okay? But when it comes to my daughters and my son, it's different. I have a responsibility that God has given me to instruct and care for them. What happens to them really matters to me. And the instruction that I give to them is based on a deeper insight of their character and what's going on in their particular situation. And so the commands that I give them are targeted to helping them to do the things that they need to do and in some cases to keep them from doing the things that they really shouldn't do. So in their case, I expect them, I fully expect them to diligently obey what I command, what I instruct. So that's kind of the difference when we talk about obey. So Paul takes the Ephesians back to Exodus chapter 20 to show that this command that he is giving is actually linked to the fifth commandment uh, that was given to the nation of Israel. Now that was the first commandment that related to human relationships and also, as, as Paul points out, the first command that has a promise associated with it. Now our brother John talked about that fifth commandment back in February and he also touched on this passage and so I think it would be helpful to revisit that because I think there's some very relevant insight that that we can bring into it. So a couple of things that were mentioned. Verse 1, this is chapter 6, verse 1. Fundamentally, the significance of this command is bigger than just obeying commands. It's really about having respect for authority. Um, That respect for authority is initially learned in the home. That's the first place that we encounter that. And if it breaks down there it's going to seep into the child's interaction with society as large. Now, the family is a basic unit of society. Healthy families result in healthy communities and healthy nations. And respect for parental authority in families strengthens society, and conversely, disrespect can erode communities and tear down, break down nations. And I think some of what we're seeing today is, a, is a, a confirmation of that. So some of us have been blessed with really wonderful parents, parents that we could honor and obey. But some of us were not as fortunate. Now, our parents were not people of upright character. Some of them may have been uh, mean and possibly abusive. However, as dogmatic as this might sound, the lack or, or poor qualifications of a parent is not a reason for disregarding this commandment. Now, we certainly need to to consider issues of safety, issues of legality, and issues of morality. Uh, We can't do something that is, uh, even if it's commanded to us, we can't do something that is contrary to Scripture or against what the Lord commands. But since parental authority or the authority that we have in our families is our first experience, our first interaction with authority, the way that we submit to our parents really sets a precedent for us, a very important precedent. And rejecting or disregarding that parental authority can create a negative pattern that will follow us through our entire life. So we need to be very careful in terms of how we respond to parental authority. Okay, so we talked about children, but you know, there are two sides, like both these relationships, there are two sides to a parent-child relationship, and success requires contribution from 
the parents, I can see the parents squirming in their seats right now. Verse 4 is that contribution. In verse 4, Paul exhorts parents to avoid provoking their children to anger. Now just to think about in Paul's day how radical this command would have been. The underlying assumption of this command is that either carelessly or willfully, parents anger their kids. And it doesn't end there. The Apostle Paul is actually calling on parents to limit or to constrain the exercise of their authority based on the anticipated psychological and emotional response that will happen in the child. Now, in the culture of Paul's day, men and parents in general were the authority figures, and they were considered infallible. Now, if Paul was just following cultural norms, he would never have made this kind of an admonition. But we see here his teaching is not cultural, it's not personal opinion, it is divine in origin, it is timeless, and it is beyond any cultural norms or restrictions. What we see here also is that God is impartial in how he relates to his children. Right? There's no difference in his eyes between parents and children in terms of their contribution to this relationship. So, that word there, going back to that verse, the word there, provoke, is the Greek word parorgizo, which means to rouse to anger, or rouse to wrath, exasperate or anger. Now, as parents, our position of authority gives us control over children's needs and wants. Now, in a positive way, these are consequences that can be used for discipline, and I know that many of us do. But there are times when parents exploit that control in ways that can exasperate or anger their children. Now, there's a, an article on the website called foreverymom.com that lists actually 16 different ways that parents can exasperate their children. I'm not going to go through 16 different examples, but I wanted to give you just kind of an inkling uh, a sample, okay? Constantly criticizing and not encouraging when they can feel that they, the children feel that they can never please us enough. Having double standards, expecting them to do things that we don't. Anger or harshness. Telling them to do something without giving them biblical reasons. Being offended at their sin because it bothers us, not because it offends God. Comparing them to others. Hypocrisy embarrassing them in front of others, correcting or mocking them, lecturing and never listening, disciplining them for childishness or foolishness or weakness, not for sin, failing to ask for forgiveness when we sin against them, self-centered reactions to their sin. How could you do this to me? And then ungracious reactions. What were you thinking when you did that? Now, if you're in my situation, speaking as a parent, I, I know and I can honestly admit that I, I have done things, hopefully not willfully, but certainly un, unwillingly to provoke my kids. But it's important to note that the apostle isn't challenging parental authority. He is not suggesting that parents should abdicate or, or fail to uh, exercise the authority that they've been given. In fact, verse 4 affirms a parental authority and the corresponding responsibility 
to exercise that authority. Now, the Old Testament is full of parent-child relationships. And there's one in particular that stands out. Most of you are aware of the relationship between Absalom and David. Now, that is a, it's recorded for us in, in um, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 20. And that is one of the most tragic examples of failed parenting. Now, the backstory on this, I'm going to compress it for you. Absalom takes revenge on his brother, Amnon, for violating his sister, Tamar. Now, then he flees to a place called Jeshur. Now, David had not taken any action against Amnon. Essentially, he abdicated his responsibility both as a parent and as sovereign of that nation. Now, we can't be sure, but likely that had some impact or some influence on the rather, the rather extreme uh, response that Absalom took. Um, in killing Amnon, you know, Absalom was not only avenging a sin done against his sister, in a sense, he was compensating, uh, he was getting back at his dad and compensating at, at David's impotence and negligence. And I say that respectfully, I have tremendous respect for David, but, but this was an epic fail. Now, David also fails to discipline Absalom for this. He longs for him to return, but he does nothing to bring him back. Joab intervenes and eventually brings Absalom back. Uh, David permits this, and he does not exercise his executive authority to put Absalom to death. But in giving Joab permission to bring Absalom back, he says to him, he must go to his own house, he must not see my face. So he will not see Absalom. This causes Absalom to resort to arson to force an audience with David. This is better than any kind of soap opera that we have nowadays. And again, there are no consequences. Okay? Absalom eventually leads a coup against his dad and ends up dying at the hands of Joab. So it's no wonder that David mourned and refused to be consoled uh, at the death of Absalom. Now, Absalom was an adult and he is accountable for his actions, but David had to realize that he was at least partially and maybe more than partially responsible. Uh, maybe at that point he fully realized the devastating impact of how he had failed Tamar and Abnon and Absalom. Now the consequences of provoking and failing to discipline our kids will rarely be this extreme, but the story of Absalom is, is an example of how bad it can possibly get. And, and especially when you think this is about David, who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. So a couple of questions probably arise at this point. How am I supposed to know that I am provoking my child to anger? And the second question, why do I have to limit the use of my authority based on the possible response or reaction of my child? I want to give you some answers to that. So far as the first question is concerned, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. So we are expected to know our children both emotionally and psychologically. You know, they definitely know how to push our buttons. Okay? Uh, and it's, our, it's incumbent on us to know what their buttons are. Now, parent, parenthood is a tremendous stewardship that we have received from the Lord. And we are expected to be industrious, diligent, um, dedicated, focused, resourceful in discharging that responsibility. And that includes getting to know uh, how our children think and feel. The second thing uh, to keep in mind is that 
like adults, children are generally intolerant of incursions into their private life, being told what to do in private life. Okay, John reminded us of this last week. Things like what clothes to wear, what friends to hang out with, what time to go to the mall, and so on. Okay? Now, uh, what John reminded us is, is when we enter into that realm, we should tread gingerly because there will be battles and we need to be prepared for battles. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. There are some battles that need to be fought. But as parents, we need to exercise discernment in terms of what battles we enter into. And John had a good suggestion. A good question to ask is, is that command or that rule that you're imposing, is that for the benefit of the child or is that for your benefit? So that's a good question to ask. Now, answer to the second question, right? Why do I need to limit my authority? Um, really flows back to verse 4. Okay, that verse says, bring them up, the children, in the discipline and admonition or instruction of the Lord. So the goal for children is really self-discipline and voluntary obedience. And that's really the way God works, if you think about it. He certainly presents or imposes and enforces consequences for disobedience, but he does not force obedience. We still have a choice. So parents are the extension of God's authority. Our goal is to get our children to develop a relationship with the Lord and to follow his commands and his instruction. Ultimately, we want our kids to live disciplined lives that honor the Lord and that are a blessing to themselves and to others. Now, we're not striving for robots that are programmed to follow every uh, command that we give without question. We are raising adults who will be able to discern for themselves what's right and wrong and live according to, consistently according to, to divine instruction. Because ultimately, they are the ones who are going to have to face the consequences of those decisions that they make. So here's a graphic that I think may help, hopefully, kind of explain what the alternatives are. Okay? Uh, and that question, why do I need to, to limit my authority? When children become angry to the point of exasperation, it is very unlikely that they will be able to submit to the authority uh, of others or to exercise self-discipline. If you think about it, that's really no different than adults are. Okay? Provoking a child causes a wall of resistance to go up against instruction and discipline. The, the child really sees the, the parent as an adversary rather than an ally. Okay? And another unwanted byproduct of this is that they may actually see God in a negative light because parents represent the authority that flows down from God. So Solomon was, going back to David, was a boy when David went through this civil war, essentially, and also the death of his sons Amnon and Absalom. Now when you read through 2 Kings and uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, you get the sense that David really learned some valuable lessons through what he went through, and he was determined not to make the same mistake with Solomon that he did with Amnon and Absalom. He invested quite a bit of time in instructing Solomon and preparing him for his future role as king. And much of that instruction was really focused on developing a deep reverence and relationship with the Lord. And when you read the story about Solomon, you get the sense that for the most part, David succeeded 
in that instruction. The early part of Solomon's life really reflects a deep reverence for God and a strong desire to honor and glorify him. We see that in his efforts to build the temple and establish the faith. Now, unfortunately, like so many of the kings of Israel, uh, Solomon did not finish as strong as he started. But this story about Solomon is, is an encouraging confirmation to parents that we will have an opportunity to make up for our mistakes. You know, another story that kind of uh, reinforces that thought is the story of the prodigal son. It's a, a wonderful story of recovery and redemption. You know, although he could have resisted and rejected the request of his younger son, the, the father chose instead to grant it and allow him to go through the consequences, which were pretty severe. But in the end, that son, on his own, realized his folly and he humbled himself first before God and then before his father. It's interesting to note that the father uses the same approach or similar approach when he interacts with his older son. Rather than you know, rebuking him and criticizing him for his uh, selfish and self-centered behavior, he instead appeals to him to think about the marvelous work that God is doing and to show grace just like God has. Now, we don't know if that was the case, but we can only hope that the older son responded to that encouragement. So we've seen that the commands that, uh, to children and parents in verses 1 to 4 are quite practical, but really pragmatism isn't what Paul is aiming at here. To understand the primary motivation for these commands, we need to go back to some of the verses that we looked at in chapter 5. All right, so verses 1 to 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then also 18 and verse 21, Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now most of what Paul talks about in the latter part of chapter 5 and and chapter 6 is really predicated on these verses. It assumes that we have internalized and committed to follow the teaching of, of these passages. And the core idea is really, it's about imitating Christ and giving witness to the character of God. And really, it's expressed in three ways. First, respecting authority, since all authority really is derived from God. Second, submitting to one another and putting the needs of others above our own. Not based on whether that person deserves it or not, but based on reverence, out of reverence for Christ. And then third, to walk in love. This is how we imitate Christ. This is how we reflect the character of God. Now, through through this passage, the Holy Spirit is also giving us some incredible insight into the character of God. You know, in the Spirit's commands to children, what we see is the character of God, the Son, in His beautiful act of voluntary submission and obedience to the Father. Now, in the Spirit's commands to the parents, what we see is God's purposeful and deliberate constraining of his of the exercise of his authority he disciplines us not for his benefit but for ours Uh, he does it out of concern for our well-being not because he's upset with us okay so really these commands are not oppressive if we see them in that light these commands are not oppressive or restrictive they're really an opportunity for us to reflect and to display to those around us the character of god okay so let's switch gears a little bit And we've talked about one set of domestic relationships. Let's talk about the other. So I had my first job. How many of you remember your first job? My first job was when I was 11 years old, okay? 
um, I, had a paper, I had a newspaper route. So technically, I started off as a small business owner and an entrepreneur. Now, this is the inter interactive part of the message. How many of you have ever had a paper route? Anyone? Ah, okay, we have one, two, two who had a paper route, okay. All right, so that kind of thing doesn't really happen very much today, okay? Uh, even delivering newspapers doesn't happen today. So I delivered newspapers about six days a week. It took me two hours each time. And in order to do that, I had to walk from my house down to the apartment building, wait for the papers to show up, sort them all out, deliver them, and, uh, and then go back home. So go ahead and take a guess at my salary, just in your own head, okay? It was $13. That's not $13 an hour. That's not $13 a day. It was $13 a week. And for that, uh, in two years, I actually managed to save $850. Now, most people think that having your own business is great. You're the boss, right? You don't answer to anyone. But in reality, I had 30 to 40 bosses, okay? Each one of my customers was like a boss. I had to follow their instructions very carefully and deliver the paper exactly like they wanted. Otherwise, I may not get paid. Now, most of my customers were, were pretty, pretty good, but there were a couple that really gave me a hard time. So in verses 5 to 9, we mentioned Paul talks about master-servant relationships. Now, these relationships, uh, once you get past family relationships, tend to be the longest in duration and probably the highest in priority. They require a lot of energy and focus to establish and maintain. Uh, some work relationships will last decades or maybe you know, the better part of your life. Okay, so they're very important. Now, in Paul's day, these relationships were, of course, different than the kinds of employee-employer relationships that we encounter today. Most people that, that are involved here were slaves. They had become slaves because their side lost a battle or because they had become so poor that they needed to sell themselves in order to have enough money to be able to take care of their families. Now, slaves had no rights. They were essentially property. And their masters could pretty much do anything to them, command them to do something, and if the slave didn't obey, the slave could be punished in all manner of ways. Okay? Paul exhorts servants or slaves to obey their masters. That's the same word we talked about, hupakuo. Now, there's nothing really shocking or revolutionary about that, but Paul goes on. He tells them to obey in the sincerity of their hearts as they would Christ. Now that word there for sincerity is haplotes, which means simplicity, mental honesty, you know, free from uh, pretense or hypocrisy. He tells them it's not just on the outside, it's what, what's on the inside that counts when you're obeying. Not as eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, rendering goodwill with as to the Lord and not unto men. Okay, that, that part is really radical. Paul is telling servants to consider their masters and give them the same honor and obedience as they would the Lord Jesus Christ. To be just as diligent in serving them as they would in serving the Lord. Now verse 8 is a promise to servants and to masters. Uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So we have a promise here that those who do good, whether masters or servants, will be recognized and rewarded by the Lord. Now, this is a reminder that we don't work for the esteem of men. Our recognition ultimately comes from...
from the Lord. It's that good, well done, that good and faithful servant. That's what we're working for. You know, a great example of rendering service with goodwill, doing the will of God from the heart, is the story of Joseph recorded for us in Genesis chapter 37, verse Sorry, Genesis chapter 37 to 50. Um, What a life of faithful service. You know, you think about Joseph. He started off by serving his his parents and his brothers. Uh, He went on to serve Potiphar. He went on to serve the owner of the prison or the, the manager of the prison. When he was serving Potiphar, he had an opportunity when his master was away to do all kinds of things, but he did not succumb to temptation. And the interesting thing to note is it was not the fear of being caught that held him back. It was his fear of the Lord and his desire to honor and serve him. So obviously today, you know, we're talking about different relationships. Um, We're not talking about master-slave relationships. It's employer-employee relationships. And we understand that intrinsically there is no difference between those roles. People who are, are supervisors or foremen or CEO are no greater or more superior than those who are employers, employees. But as employees, we have an opportunity in the way that we conduct ourselves in those relationships to be able to give a good witness for God. So, of course, there are two parties in a successful master-servant relationship. And Paul makes it clear in verse 9 that he expects masters to contribute. He says to them, do the same things. So what does Paul mean there? when he says, do the same things. Well, this is my thought or opinion, is he's really referring to verses 7 and 8, where he says, with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord. So what Paul is, was telling them is to seek the welfare, to do good to their servants. Now this, in Paul's day, this really would have been revolutionary, unheard of that a master should seek and, and care for the well-being of their servants. And he reinforces that command by reminding them that the Lord in heaven is both their master and the master of that, or their Lord and the, and the Lord of that servant. And again, Paul is not telling masters here to abdicate or relinquish their authority. There is a need for bosses to be able to give direction and commands to their employees, but when in, in doing that, Paul is telling them, be careful how you exercise that authority. Exercise it with the well-being of your servants in mind. Now this admonition that Paul is giving is really consistent with what the Lord teaches in Luke chapter 22. Uh, he says this, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table, but I am among you as one who served? Now, the Lord Jesus served those who were under his authority out of reverence for his Father and for the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he was in the form of God. In other words, he had ultimate authority, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. So the Lord Jesus voluntarily took the lower place so that he could elevate us. He could bring us into a relationship with God. So just to kind of wrap up, the takeaway for this message is, you know, we have an opportunity through these relationships that we've talked about, 
husband-wife relationships, parent-child relationships, employer-employee relationships. We have an opportunity to imitate and demonstrate the character of God. That's the real point that Paul is making here. We can do that by respecting authority, by submitting to one another, and by walking in love. And of course, doing these things doesn't come easily, and really it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God working in your life. Now, I became a believer. I converted to Christianity from Hinduism when I was about 19 years old. Although he never said this to me, I'm pretty sure my dad was not happy with that decision. Okay, I know that because I probably wouldn't be happy if my children decided to follow a different faith. But the interesting thing is he never actively opposed that decision or tried to get me to turn back. Okay? probably one of the few times that I actually rejected his authority without consequences. I think it was because he saw the change in me. And that included the relationship that I had with him, the relationship with my ha- had with my siblings, changed profoundly. And, and you know, it, was, it wasn't my effort. I can honestly say that it was supernatural. It was the Spirit of God working in me. I hadn't studied Ephesians chapter 5 or 6, but the truth of those passages really was evident in my life because the Spirit of God was at work. So let me ask you, has there been a time when you realized that you needed or need God in your life? I don't mean just knowing about God, but knowing God personally, having a personal relationship with the God of the universe. But that relationship, a personal faith, is not something that can be imposed on you and you don't inherit it. Uh, as much as we'd like to think that, you don't inherit it by, uh, because of your parents or because you sit in a particular church or you're a member of a particular place. It's a personal decision. It's a deliberate personal decision, a choice that you have to make. And that starts with trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died for your sins, receiving the forgiveness that he gives. That's the first step because those sins are a barrier between you and God. You cannot know God when those sins are separating you from him. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he died to take away that barrier and give you a free, bring you into a free relationship with God. When you believe that, it's a free gift. It's not something you have to pay, but it's a free gift that you can receive. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive that free gift, the Spirit of God regenerates you. He gives you new life. You're born again, and he is the one who, working in you, empowers you to live this kind of life. You cannot do it by your own energy and effort. It requires the Spirit of God. So if you've never received that gift of salvation, today would be a wonderful day to do that. And we would be more than happy to talk to you about it if you'd like to get more information. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for your care and concern over us. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the marvelous witness and example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who walked in love, the one who submitted himself, the one who displayed marvelous submission to authority and obedience. Uh, He is our example, but he is so much more than that. He wants to live in us and empower us to walk even as he walked. Father, we confess uh, we are powerless to live this kind of life. We are 
so we were separated from you, but because of what the Lord Jesus did, we can come into a relationship with you. We thank you for all those that are here today that have done that. But we pray if there is anyone here who has not yet done that, that they would put their faith in Lord Jesus. Uh, we ask these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name.